qui bono? Who benefited from Nazi Germany? Qui bono is an old Latin term, first used in the Roman Empire. It basically translates to who benefits. The modern equivalent is follow the money. The idea being that you can find out why anything happened, who the guilty parties are, if you simply ask, who did well out of this? Who did okay by this? So today, we're going to have a look at Nazi Germany. And we're going to ask ourselves how it was that the Nazis were able to control Germany for so long and keep so many people in line, even without thinking about things like the SS and the Gestapo, So how were they able to keep so many people in line? Well, you simply ask yourself, how did people benefit? You might want to settle in and get comfortable with this one, because this is going to be quite a long one, because it's quite a complicated subject. So, who benefited? Remember that there are three main areas of political power in Germany, and always have been. The landed aristocracy, the army and the industrialists. You can add to that the farming communities who are linked to the landed aristocracy and the working classes who historically have tended to side with the socialists if not going as far left as the communists. So we need to in turn have a look at how each of these groups was affected by Nazi rule. First, the economy. In the 1920s America was propping up the Weimar government with a great deal of loans. As we've already discussed, once the Wall Street crash hits in the Great Depression, those loans disappear. All of that external funding goes, and the economy of the Weimar government is hit particularly badly by the Great Depression. That means by 1933, there are two major economic problems facing Germany. The first is mass unemployment, and the second is a crisis in farming. There are 5 million unemployed by 1933. Now, to be fair, by 1933, the worst of the Great Depression is over. But that's not to say that the Nazis don't tackle it with energy and power as soon as they get into control. Dr. Schacht is in charge of the economic recovery. And he funds a huge number of work creation schemes. The idea here being that if the government spends money in order to employ people, those people then have money in their pockets which they can go out and spend, and that will have a knock-on effect in other areas of the economy. The two best examples of what was done was the railways and the autobahns. New railways were constructed, old railways were improved and got ready. Now, this also has another knock-on effect. Improving your transport infrastructure, especially the railways, helps prepare a country for war when you are trying to move men and materials around. So never underestimate the fact that this was part of a joined-up approach, which we'll talk about when we talk about the four-year plan. So there's the railways, and the other thing was the autobahns. These were huge, sweeping motorways, a massive network connecting all the major cities of Germany together. These were funded by the government, and they employed thousands upon thousands of men to go out and do labour. 
There were also massive house-building programs and huge programs of public works like the brand-new Reichschancery in Berlin. Alongside this program of public works and ways to increase employment through government contracts, Hitler also starts a program of rearmament. Now, building up the armament of the country, including tanks and the navy, kickstarts heavy industry. And this is put under the control of Hermann Goering by creating something called a four-year plan. The idea here was to get Germany ready for war. Now, this has a number of things. As we've said, it kickstarts heavy industry, but it also buys the loyalty of the army. After all, they're getting lots of brand new shiny toys to play with. The creation of the Luftwaffe, the German Air Force, also provides a lot of employment opportunities for designers and engineers. And of course, constructing these aeroplanes requires yet more industry. Introducing conscription, forcing people to join the army, also decreases unemployment. By 1938, unemployment is less than 0.5 million. It's tumbled. That's pretty close to full employment in a modern industrialised country. Government expenditure, on the other hand, has increased massively. In six years, it goes from 5 to 30 billion Reichsmarks. But do not underestimate this is money well spent. Because what it does is it gets the economy moving. It makes the government look competent, organised and as though they have the best interests of Germany and the German people at heart. It also reduces opposition from one very, very simple way. People who were unemployed in the early 1930s carry those scars with them. They don't want to be unemployed again. They want financial security. They want to be able to provide for their families. Therefore, they will do nothing to risk their jobs. And they believe that they are being watched by the Gestapo. They believe the word of what they're saying is being passed around. So you're not going to criticise the government, because if you do, you could well find yourself back out of work again. The same is also true of small businesses. Small businesses who lose Nazi business will go bankrupt. They will go out of business. Therefore, small businesses will put money into Nazi coffers. They will fund the Nazi party, and they will also ensure that their employees toe the party line. So, the first element is the economic recovery. The second element is the workers. As we've already said, historically, the working classes did not support the NSDAP the Nazi party. They supported the Socialist Workers' Party, or in some cases, the Communists. However, once they get into power, the Nazi party starts to focus on trying to gain and hold on to the loyalty of the workers through a number of different means. Firstly, the organisation Strength Through Joy. This was a workers' organisation which provided cultural opportunities for workers at very cheap rates, if not even free in some cases. So, for example, workers could have cheap theatre tickets, they could have cheap cinema tickets, they could go on cruises, they could get cheap cruises on the latest luxury liners, sporting events were being offered, trips, day trips. All of these things offered cheap, if not free, to workers, simply for their loyalty. Another scheme, which was massively popular with workers, was the idea of the people's car 
which in German is Volkswagen, which may be a word you've heard before. The idea here was that workers would pay five marks a week, and in return they would be given the Volkswagen Beetle, a car designed by Ferdinand Porsche. Yes, that Ferdinand Porsche. And if you look at an old Volkswagen Beetle, you will see that it basically looks like a squashed-up Porsche. Anyway... The problem here is, of course, that nobody ever actually ended up getting the car because car production was halted by the advent of the war. But in the 1930s, everybody believed they were going to get their car very, very cheap. And they would be able to drive on these fantastic new autobahns and a new freedom would be granted to them. All at the behest of the Nazi party. Another scheme was beauty of labour. The idea behind this one was to improve working conditions in the factories and industrial heartlands of Germany. And indeed, in a lot of ways, it did improve working conditions. They introduced things like washrooms, the facility for people to get themselves clean after a day's work, and also cheap canteens in factories and workplaces. However, it wasn't all rosy for the workers. Trade unions had been outlawed and replaced with the general labour front. Now, if you don't know what a trades union is, it's a way for workers to organise themselves so that they can bargain as a whole. The idea being that any one worker can be got rid of or ignored, but if every worker stands together, then employers and governments have to listen. In the worst-case scenario, a trades union can get its members to strike, withdraw their labour, refuse to work. But this is no longer an option for German workers. Now they work for the General Labour Front. All workers are required to join and they're no longer allowed to strike. This helps the Nazi party keep a very tight control on the working classes. Now overall, these approaches to the workers reduced opposition massively. The workers can't organise anymore without the trade unions. Propaganda is also constantly trying to ally workers with Hitler, showing the Nazi party and the workers standing together to produce the new Germany. Never underestimate the power of propaganda, especially when, as in all other totalitarian regimes in Nazi Germany, propaganda is omnipresent. It's everywhere. So let's put the economic and the working classes together and see how it would work in practice. Let's talk about Klaus. Klaus is an average working guy. Let's say he's in his late 30s, he's married, he's got a kid, maybe two, and he works in some form of industry. Let's say steelwork. He did okay in the last years of the Weimar Republic. He had a steady job, he had an income, he had a decent house, and Time for a few luxuries, enough spare cash at the end of the month for a treat every now and again. Then the Great Depression hits. The economy slows down, the factory shuts down, he's out of work. He's on the breadline, the government can't afford to pay, much in the way of dole, so he's having trouble feeding his family. Maybe he goes to a few Nazi party rallies, maybe he doesn't. Maybe he votes National Socialist, maybe he doesn't. But either way, in 1933, Hitler becomes Chancellor. Then you've got the Reichstag fire, the sudden feeling that there's revolution in the air. But don't worry, Hitler's there to protect us. And things start to get better. Maybe the factory opens up again, and he gets taken on. 
But in any case, no matter what work he ends up doing, he's doing work again. And not only that, as he looks around the country, he's seeing the very fabric of Germany being remade. He's seeing railways, factories, autobahns. And through strength, through joy, he's going on holidays. He's taking his children on cruises. He's able to take them to the sports plats and see football and all sorts of other sporting events. Life is measurably better for Klaus. So it's only natural that he doesn't want to rock the boat. He remembers those hard years, those years where he didn't have enough food on the table. He's going to keep his head down. And that's pretty much what you see across huge swathes of the working classes. They just keep their heads down. So the third factor is the farmers. Now this one's slightly more complicated for two reasons. Ideology gets mixed up in it. Now obviously there are practical reasons why you want a good farming industry. After all, people have got to eat. There's also the political consideration that you have not only the Junkers, the landed aristocracy, but you have a large number of peasant farmers, especially in eastern Germany. And they have always been a core of national socialist support. They've been the bedrock on which the movement has been built. And these people are expecting some form of payback now that the Nazis are in government. So... From September 1933, the Reich Food Estate is established. Now, this is only nine months after the government's got into power, so they're moving quite quickly. But what happens here is that the Reich Food Estate collects and distributes food centrally. Peasant farmers are guaranteed a market for their goods. But not only that, they're guaranteed decent prices. This is a huge leap forward for them. Added to that also that there is legal protection now for the peasant farmers from banks. Banks can no longer foreclose on these small farms. They're basically immune from bad harvests. This is incredible. This gives them a fantastic boost of confidence and also protects those peasant farmers as a class from everything else that's happening in the country. How does ideology come into it? Well... The Nazi ideal was blood and soil. Germany for them was this quasi-mystical mixture of German blood and race and the soil from which they sprang. It's all mixed up with the concept of Lebensraum and living space in the East. And the idea is that the colonists who ascend to the East, once the lower races have been removed, will establish themselves in small farming communities where they will work the soil. And by the sweat of their brow and the blood of their German spirits, they will turn that land into Germany. It's this appeal of this past that never was, this quasi-medievalist approach, this overly romanticised ideal of what they want Germany to be in the future. But in order to have that, they have to protect the German peasant farmers. And that's why you get this large-scale intervention in that area of the economy. The fourth area is big business. Now, we've already discussed how, for Hitler to become Chancellor, it required some backdoor dealings done between the political classes and the industrialists. 
And from the very early 1930s, the National Socialist Party has been getting a great deal of funding from big businesses because they saw them as a way of heading off the communist threat. Never, ever, ever underestimate the fear of communism in the 20th century especially to people who have a vested interest in maintaining their hold on the means of production, if you want to use Marx's terms. Big businesses are directly threatened by communism. Therefore, anybody who stands strong against communism is their best friend. And in Germany in the 1930s, that's Adolf Hitler. So, what do big business get out of the Nazi government? Well, first off, the communist threat is gone. Following the Reichstag fire, the Communist Party is outlawed. About 4,000 of them are arrested and shipped off to concentration camps without benefit of trial. But also, remember we said that the trade unions were gone. That now means that there's nobody bargaining for workers' rights. There's nobody bargaining for workers' pay. And also, crucially, workers no longer have the right to withdraw their labour. They cannot go on strike. That now means that in terms of organising how their businesses work, the industrialists are setting the table. Ally that to enormous government contracts coming out in the early 1930s and the mid-1930s, generally as part of the rearmament programme, and what you're finding is it's boom time for big business. There are government contracts for everything, from explosives to fertilisers to cars... An awful lot of big names in the global marketplace today got their start from massive government contracts in 1930s Germany. Mercedes, Volkswagen, IG Farben. It's a slightly more mixed picture if you're a smaller business, if you're the middle classes. Now, if you are a small business involved in heavy industry, engineering, something like that, you're going to do well, because that's a growth industry as we're getting rearmament and all these new bits and pieces being put together. But if that's not your industry, you're not going to do well. Department stores are going to be squeezing out the smaller businesses, just like they are in the rest of Europe. There's no protection there from the government. On the other hand, you do have that threat of communism removed and also the trade unions. But it's a very much more a mixed picture for the middle classes than it is for big business. The final sector is the Volk. And you've seen the poster, I would hope. It's that very famous picture with Hitler standing against a black background and underneath it simply says, Ein Volk, Ein Reich, Ein Führer. One people, one empire, one leader. And the thing is, National Socialism as a movement, as an almost religious set of ideologies, National Socialism does not want people to think of themselves as farmers, as business people, as workers, as factory owners. It wants them to think of themselves as Germans, as part of the Volk as one part of the whole, and they want them to have loyalty to Germany and to Hitler, not to any one sector. The concept here is Volksgemeinschaft, the national community. 
And part of this is also worth touching on the roles of women. There was a very traditionalist role in Nazi ideology about what women should do. Women should stay at home. Women should raise families. They introduced financial incentives for women to have more children and for married couples to have more children. There were medals for women that had a certain number of children. And this causes an issue later on when they start getting into the late 1930s and conscription starts stripping away the workforce. At that point, they need more women in industry, but they now find themselves with a peculiar tension between this very traditional idea of what women should be doing and economic need. And it is fair to say that when they start getting into the war, this dislike of using German womanhood as an industrial resource actually hampers production and hampers the ability of the country to wage war. Now, how effective was this, this idea of bringing everybody together in the national community, this idea of the Volksgemeinschaft? It wasn't particularly. As far as we can tell, people still maintained the loyalties they always used to have to their local area, their town, their class, their church. But it is fair to say that people did develop a major sense of national pride in what was being done. Not only in the transformation of Germany internally, but also in Hitler's successes in the 1930s through foreign policy. For the majority of Germans, the benefits of Nazi rule made them willing, at least on the surface, to accept a large amount of central control over their lives, all in the service of making Germany a great power again. So there you have it. The five main areas in which people benefited in Nazi Germany were the economic area, the working classes the farmers, big business, and the Volk community. Now, the thing you have to remember is, if we're talking about three traditional areas of power in Germany, each of them benefits from that. And you can very easily see how that would help prop up support for the National Socialist government and for Hitler personally. Especially when you consider that a lot of the propaganda is tied to the person of Hitler. So the things that are going wrong are never actually pinned on him. It's worth remembering that the chaotic nature of the Nazi government and the corruption of a great deal of lower-ranking Nazi ministers and gauleiters and people in the local areas, people's reaction to that was always, if only the Fuhrer knew, he would put a stop to it. So what about Klaus? Well, he's doing pretty well. We're heading into the late 1930s. Germany feels strong, confident, great again. They've made huge territorial gains in the East. The economy is ticking over well. Everybody seems to feel pretty well off. So when things start going a little bit wrong, when neighbours disappear, when people start to whisper on street corners about the Gestapo and things like that, Klaus as we've already said, isn't going to say anything. He's going to keep his head down, and he's going to keep quiet. Qui bono? Who benefits? In Nazi Germany, more or less everybody, as long as you were German. Thank you for listening, and good luck in your exams.